friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. As we embrace the sustained joy of the Easter season, we invite you to join us every week on this show where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we have a great show lined up for you this week as we try to do every single week on Conversations with Consequences. And the second part of the show, we're going to be talking to Father Donald Calloway, marking this year of St. Joseph. We're going to look at his most recent book called Consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Father. And we're going to talk to him about the role of spiritual fathers in our lives and how each of us at home tries to approximate in some small way the beauty and uh, and purity of the Holy Family, how and how Saint Joseph can help us do that. Before that, my co-host, my colleague at uh, the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, will be joining me, and we'll be talking to Ed Whalen. He's a distinguished legal scholar of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Because um, something big happened this past week, and that is that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up the case of Jackson Women's Health organization versus Dobbs. This is a case out of Mississippi. Mississippi back in 2018, they passed a law that prohibited abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And the way that this law was crafted and and written, it's a law that's meant to go all, all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has taken it up. There is this amazing chance that this, with this case, that our Supreme Court will relook at at Roe v. Wade and what that has meant uh, to our country, to the barbaric way that we treat unborn children in our country. The fact that since Roe v. Wade, since 1973, in our country, any child, any unborn child can be aborted at any point in the pregnancy, even in very late pregnancy. This puts the United States in very dubious company with countries like China, North Korea, and Cuba, which also allow abortions through all nine months of pregnancy. And it takes us out of uh, even the company of st- uh, places that we consider much more liberal, places in Europe. Most countries in the world do not allow abortion later on. It's only in the United States and these other awful players like China and Cuba where this is allowed. So this is obviously something that goes, uh, this this fact that abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy, that you know tens of thousands of abortions are performed legally in the United States, that children's lives are ended right and left. This is something that should concern all of us. It certainly concerns Catholics. It's wonderful to, to think that finally before the Supreme Court and before a Supreme Court that we can hope will uphold the law as it is written, that will have a way of looking at the Constitution where it doesn't invent rights and invent ideas out of the Constitution, but actually reads it the way it's written, that maybe this terrible abortion barbarity in our country can be changed and maybe things can be sent, these uh, questions can be sent back to the states. So for instance, in the state of Mississippi, the people of Mississippi decided through the democratic process, through the election of the people that represent them in the state, they decided that it was barbaric that women should be able to abort after 15 weeks because of all sorts of reasons. 
for instance, the the reason that pregnancy that abortion gets more and more dangerous for the mother uh, as as pregnancy advances, for the reason that it's uh, that the state has the the right and the duty to protect women and children in Mississippi, um, for the fact that same fact that it puts that uh, abortion in uh, in the later terms of pregnant in the later parts of pregnancy puts the United States in company with awful places like North Korea, Cuba, and China. Over 90% of countries in the world already uh, restrict abortion to the first trimester or so. It's a common sense law. It acknowledges the humanity of the child. We all know through ultrasound, and all of you know from listening to this show, that I'm a radiologist and I do fetal ultrasound, and many of my patients are fetuses. The humanity of these little patients of mine is very obvious to me. They are as human and as important and as dignified as their mothers, as their fathers, as their grandparents. And just because they are located physically inside their mothers does not mean that they should be excluded from acceptance into the human family, that they should be treated with such disdain. Another reason the Mississippi law is a great law is because it protects doctors and the integrity of the medical profession. Because these laws, they free the medical profession to protect life instead of destroying life. The fact that abortion is legal, that there's this push to teach it in medical school, it, it is a perversion of the medical, of the beautiful and decent medical profession, which preserves life, protects life, helps life to flourish, promotes health. So there's nothing healthy about abortion. In fact, you know, a pregnant woman is a very healthy woman in general because a woman has to be sort of healthy to get pregnant. It means that things are working and that she's uh, young and full of life and full of life enough to transmit life. And uh, usually pregnancy is a very safe and a very wonderful state. So there's no reason to talk about abortion as though It's a necessary medical procedure. There is no necessary medical procedure when it comes to abortion. You know, that's an interesting point. And I've made this point before. When people talk about abortions being necessary for maternal health, we have to break that down and we have to stop and think about it. From the medical perspective, an abortion is never necessary because an abortion is the direct killing, the purposeful killing of the child, of the embryo of the fetus inside the mother followed by the evacuation of the embryo or the fetus, uh, the baby, from the mother's uterus. If at any point in, at any point of a pregnancy, a, woman, a woman's pregnancy has to be ended because if not, her life could be, is in danger or her life could be ended, such as in cases of preeclampsia, it is not necessary to perform an abortion. All that's necessary is to deliver the baby. Many times the baby will be delivered and taken to the NICU and that baby will have a chance at life as that baby deserves. So abortion is never medically necessary for the mother's health. Worst comes to worst, you deliver the baby and then you try to help that baby pull through if the baby is premature. You know, things have changed, and we need to think about this since Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, and there are more resources now to help women raise their children by themselves than there were before. And there's also less of a stigma to unwed pregnancy. So abortion, in many ways, has become less quote-unquote necessary. I don't really believe it was necessary at any point, but it has um, it has lost some of its, its apparent necessity because of these changes. The fact is, is that abortion does not, it's not a, a dignified country like the United States built on this 
noble ideal of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness should not have an abortion regime that is barbaric, that allows abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. It simply should not be so. I have a lot of hope that this wonderful, this wonderful thing that the Supreme Court has taken up this case will lead to the change of the abortion regime in the United States. It would be a wonderful thing. It would be wonderful for children, for women, for the fathers of the children, for families in general, and wonderful for our entire country. I welcome now Aureen Ferguson. She's my co-host for this beginning part of the show and my colleague at the Catholic Association. We'd also like to welcome Ed Whalen, who is on the phone with us. Ed Whalen is a legal scholar with the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and uh, we have a lot to ask him about Mississippi's case, uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs, just taken up by the Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, Ed. Thank you. Ed, you know, we just had to have you on because this week we had momentous news that the Supreme Court is taking up the Mississippi abortion ban case. So we wanted to ask your opinion about that. And first, let's start with your reaction. Well, I think it's excellent news that the court has granted review of the um, decision that struck down Mississippi's law. Um, that decision is arguably very consistent with the Roe abortion regime, and this um, grant of review then uh, signals that the court is serious about rethinking that regime, a regime that is uh, lawless and uh, has disrupted American politics for nearly 50 years now. So, Ed, can you explain some of the basics to us here? What does the Mississippi law do, if you could start with that, and tell us why it's so significant that the Supreme Court has agreed to take this case? Because I think we all have a sense that this is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade because of the pre-viability abortion ban, but but please give us further explanation of why this is so significant. Uh, happy to. The case concerns a law called uh, the Gestational Age Act enacted in Mississippi in 2018. This law allows abortions after 15 weeks of gestational age only in, a only in the case of medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormality. In other words, there's a general ban on abortion in Mississippi after 15 weeks subject to these exceptions. Well, the um, abortion regime under Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, doesn't um, permit prohibition of abortion before viability. Uh, viability comes uh, well after 15 weeks. Um, some might say as early as 18 weeks, maybe in the 20 to 22 week range. But this uh, this law uh, clearly operates um, pre-viability, and it's therefore not surprising that the lower courts concluded that um, it's uh, inconsistent with Roe. And, and Casey. So by granting review, the court has indicated um, that it is uh, open to um, reconsidering uh, Roe and Casey, and this case provides an excellent opportunity for it to do so. Have in mind that some of the cases that have come to the court recently um, involving, say, uh, admissions privileges in hospitals, um, cases from Texas uh, and Louisiana, have really been at the, 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 the margins of um, what the abortion regime might or might not allow. I mean, the legislatures have been trying to work and figure out what they can do and, uh, again, just nibbling at the margins, and the court has um, struck those down in, in the, the last few years. 
But here we have a case that that, that tees up directly whether Roe ought to remain uh, the governing uh, Supreme Court uh, rule on this. So this could really strike uh, right to the heart of Roe, because that I think that people are, are confused as to why some of these challenges nibble on the edges and why some go to the heart. And I know you just probably tried to explain it, and I'm not very I'm not a legal scholar. Maybe you could explain that difference. Sure. Well, again, um, well, the basic standard under um, Roe and Casey is that there can't be an undue burden mm. on a uh, on abortion. Well, what the heck does undue burden mean? <laughs> no one uh, knows, especially when it comes to what I call these regulations at the margin. Um, but the court has made cl- has made clear that in 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 Casey, there's undue burden to um, prohibit abortion um, before viability. Um, which is what the Mississippi law um, does, at least for um, uh, some weeks before viability. So it's clear, uh, it seems fairly clear that this case can't be reconciled um, with the uh, court's uh, rule in, in, in Roe and Casey, whereas in lots, lots of other instances, it's less clear. Even, for example, in the partial birth abortion case uh, from 2007, the court in that case basically assumed that it accepted the, the, the Casey framework that you couldn't bar abortion before viability and it simply said that this ban on partial birth abortion did not amount to a bar on abortion because there are other means of abortion available. It was simply um, pres- uh, prohibiting one means. Uh, but this Mississippi law um, is, is, is quite clear that, um, again, with these narrow exceptions in the case of, a, of a medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormality, um, abortion uh, is not permissible after 15 weeks of gestational age. Ed, could you expand a little bit upon um, the fact that this is really where American public opinion is. I mean, public opinion would really ban abortion even earlier in pregnancy. And of course, most of the countries around the world prohibit abortion, you know, even earlier in pregnancy, many European countries, 12 weeks, 13 weeks. So, so, so tell us about the, the polling on the Mississippi law. Uh, sure. Well, there could be polling. Um, the polling can be all over the place in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to asking people what they think of Roe. I mean, there, there have been media misdepictions of Roe's holding for coming on in nearly 50 years now. And uh, so you have a lot of people who might say that they don't want to overturn Roe at the same time that they support restrictions on abortion that are not allowed under Roe. There was a poll not too long ago where only 29% of Americans think that abortion should generally be allowed after the first three months of pregnancy, 13, 13 or so weeks. So um, that that would, would would suggest then that you know that there's um, only a, a um, only this percentage twenty nine percent or or less that would that 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 would oppose um, a law like Mississippi's. Uh, as you indicated, uh, there are lots of foreign countries, including Western European countries, that have a gestational limit of less than fifteen weeks. In other words, um, they, they they bar abortion um, after uh, twelve weeks or fourteen weeks. That includes countries like France and Italy and Germany and Spain and Norway. So um, our uh, abortion regime under Roe and Casey is in many respects um, uh, radical and extreme. And I think the more people understand what it actually is uh, and how uh, out of step it is with so much of the, the world, uh, the more ready that they'll be to um, to support the overturning of Roe in a way that allows um, regulations 
uh, to be enacted that, that reflect their preferences. You know, that said, let's not kid ourselves. You know, we have a big fight ahead for those of us who are pro-life. There are lots of, st- there, there are lots of states where the legislatures will enact um, uh, uh, broadly uh, permissive abortion policies. There are others that will be more uh, uh, protective of, of the unborn. But, um, you know, if and when Roe goes, we'll finally be able to have this public debate that has essentially been squelched uh, for coming on 50 years. Well, Ed, you said if Roe goes, how how hopeful are you that um, we do have a majority of conservatives on the court? How hopeful are you that this could actually happen with uh, the current makeup of the court? Well, I'm very hopeful. I um, find it hard to imagine that um, uh, six of the justices um, could um, believe that Roe was rightly decided. Indeed, I doubt that any of them (laughs) actually believe that. Um, Three of them might um, be eager to hide behind um, uh, what we lawyers call stare decisis, their adherence to precedent in saying that, that, that we have to abide by Roe. Uh, obviously, the hope of um, the opponents of the Mississippi law is that they can um, pull off um, uh, two of the more conservative justices um, to also um, uh, leave Roe and Casey in place uh, and, um, because of adherence to precedent. But, the, but you know, the, the case uh, for, for Roe um, to be left in place as a precedent is really as, as, as weak as it could possibly be. This is a, an opinion that um, not only is clearly wrong, but has been um, you know ridiculed by left and right for decades. It's never been accepted by the American public. You see, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of uh, pieces of legislation each year that, that challenge it in one fashion or another. So I'm very hopeful that the court um, will finally overturn Roe. So, Ed, what's your opinion on the the current likelihood that the Democrats will be successful with some sort of court packing scheme to put more liberal justices on the court? Because this, of course, will fuel that push from the left to, you know, change the Supreme Court fundamentally, you know, making it a political body rather than the independent judiciary that it ought to be. So I know I know at one point you thought the court packing threat was not very real. Do you still think that now that the pro-abortion forces will surely pull out all the stops to pack the court in, you know, either in anticipation of this decision or after it, if there is a favorable decision for our side? Well, I don't think the court packing uh, threat uh, is very real. And I don't think that the um, abortion pitch actually has um, broad appeal with important sectors of the Democratic base. To be sure, there's uh, one large sector for whom that is the number one issue. They've tried uh, in order to expand their appeal to, you know, to to suppress their um, zeal um, in times of election. But uh, look, if 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 all goes um, uh, as it ought to. Roe is overturned. State legislatures, either um, before the ruling comes down, as they've already done in some states, or after, um, enact the abortion policies um, that that they see fit for their states. Over time, people revisit those. Um, We're not going to be happy with um, a lot of those laws. Obviously, um, the pro-abortion side isn't going to be happy with a lot of those laws. But um, that's the way our system of federalism works. And overall, uh, a lot more people will be a lot happier than, than they 
they would be under the current system. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined today by Maureen Ferguson, my co-host and my colleague at the Catholic Association. And we have the pleasure of having Ed Whalen with us. He's a lawyer and distinguished senior fellow and, uh, and the Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And so, Ed, um, when I saw the news of this uh, of the of the Supreme Court taking up the case, I went online and I wanted to check the reaction of the left because it's always very instructive to me, uh, the pro-abortion left, how they react to these things. And what I saw was a big, a lot of people concentrating on Amy Coney Barrett and saying that uh, that she this is the this is the big reason she was um, you know rushed into into the Supreme Court that she was going to be make all the difference and um, of course women were going to lose their rights, as they put it, to abort. Do you think that they're being unhinged, or is this criticism correct, that she's going to be the big uh, difference uh, as we see it? Well, Justice Barrett has one vote, just like the other justices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm very hopeful that she will be in the right place on this. Um, and I, I emphasize that's what we're talking about. We're talking about right legal judgment. So, yeah, they ought to be worried that she will exercise sound legal judgment, because if she does, um, Roe's not going to be around for very long. So, um, you know, they can, uh, uh, you know, c- complain about a situation that in, in many ways they really created with the um, abolition of the filibuster first the lower courts, then threatening to abolish it for the, for the Supreme Court, then then filibustering courts, which in a way that led to its abolition. Um, but this is where we are, and um, you know, I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, that Justice Barrett will help to um, lead the way and um, form a coalition that will overturn Roe. So just briefly, our since you mentioned Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Barrett, um, our very precocious 10-year-old was asking me, she overheard me talking about uh, this case, and after I explained it to her, and I was explaining how exciting it is, because when you look at, you know, I immediately went on all the baby websites to look at fetal development at 15 weeks, and of course, the baby at this stage of development has eyebrows and distinct little fingers and toes and, you know, is sucking his or her thumb. So I was explaining all of this to my precocious little girl, who, by the way, was riveted by the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. She captured the attention even of a 10-year-old girl. But she, when I explained the significance of this case to her, she ran to our kitchen cabinet where we have a coffee mug from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture, where Amy Barrett was a fellow. And this coffee mug has a little sort of daily to-do checklist on it. And it has a little box to check off and it says save the tiny humans. (laughs) And, And my little girl ran, grabbed this mug, and said, Mom, I'm going to check this box and write Amy on it. (laughs) It was so precious, so precious. But anyway, so my question is, what about the Chief Justice? Ed, I'm sure you don't like to make any predictions, but do you think there might be a danger that the Chief Justice may try to thread the needle more narrowly? Or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, I am, you know, concerned about the Chief Justice, as anyone on the pro-life side ought to be, given his uh, vote uh, last year uh, in the in the uh, June medical case. Uh, that said, in that case, he ended up, um, you know, whether uh, deliberately or otherwise, um, fostering a lot of um, uh, confusion over just what um, the uh, Casey standard meant 
um, in, in the context of um, the cases being decided and just how clear it was. And in some ways, that confusion um, helps to create the the, the case that um, that the abortion precedent precedent is 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 sufficiently messed up that it should be overturned. Uh, look, he um, ultimately um, is uh, vote number uh, six, uh, uh, and. In other words, uh, Roe could be overturned without him. Um, I would hope that he would um, embrace the opportunity uh, as, as, a, as a Reagan conservative uh, to undo this terrible mistake of, of Roe and uh, be proud to have been, um, uh, that it would be the Roberts court that, that, that would do it. Um, but, uh, but we shall see. Good reminder to keep all of them in our prayers, right? Uh, absolutely. And look, uh, you know, I'd love, I'd love for this to be 9-0. That would be wonderful. And, and there's a lot of panic on the left uh, at, at the what happens if Roe falls. And the way that the left explains it is that women are going to be barefoot and in the kitchen and pregnant perpetually. <laughs> but what happens? Can you explain to us and to our listeners what happens if Roe falls? What's, what's the next step? What does that look like in America? Well, the next step is that uh, authority is returned to the states to um, uh, enact uh, the laws that the people of each state um, believe best suits um, their state and to revisit those laws uh, over time. So you would see, um, through the wonders of federalism, uh, considerable uh, diversity, uh, at least initially in the country. It may well be um, that, that, that uh, things would tend to converge over time. You know, again, uh, it's difficult to be optimistic that we're going to have robust pro-life laws soon uh, in, in all 50 states. Um, but uh, we're almost certainly going to have a situation that's far better than what we have today. And we'll have the opportunity to, to, to keep working on that. So, um, uh, you know, obviously the other side's going to engage in, in a lot of uh, scaremongering. And, you know, insofar as they think that anything other than abortion on demand through um, all nine months of pregnancy um, is uh, is scary, then, you know, they certainly have ample cause. But they'll be able to make their case uh, in the public arena. And, um, you know, the, the people through their legislators will, will decide. Well, Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. We know that you've been following, you've, you've had your eye on this case for a long time. You've been writing on it for National Review, uh, bench memos. Um, I, I knew to keep an eye on this case because I saw that Ed Whalen was keeping an eye on this case. So, so thank you so much for all your work and for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Ed. And to our listeners, to learn more about Ed Whalen and his wonderful work, visit eppc.org. So thank you, Ed. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. In this segment of the show, we have a very interesting guest for you. His name is Father Donald Calloway, and he recently wrote a book called The Consecration to St. Joseph, The Wonders of Our Spiritual Father. This year is the year of St. Joseph, and we're going to take this time with Father Calloway to look at the role of spiritual fathers in our own lives and how St. Joseph can be an inspiration for each of us to form a holy family at home. Father Calloway, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much. It's good to be with you, Gracie. You know, I'm so glad you wrote this book about uh, consecrating our lives to St. Joseph because there's so much packed into that. We want to deepen our understanding with you in these few minutes that we have with you. So thank you very much, um, not just for writing the book, but for coming on the show and telling us about it. Yeah, no, I'm honored to do it. Anything to get the word out about St. Joseph, absolutely. So this year has been declared the year of St. Joseph, and we're all meant to, as Catholics, to be concentrating on what St. Joseph, he's supposed to mean to us, what Mm. he brings to our understanding of the faith, of our relationship with God, our relationship to Jesus, and uh, even our relationship to the Holy Mother, I think. This reminds me, There's my husband is a convert um, from Judaism, and he has mentioned to me several times, as he hears about, about St. Joseph uh, from different from different perspectives and different homilies and meditations and things. He always says, but you know, in the Bible, we know very little about St. Joseph. And then he tells me, I wonder how all these things came to be that we have all these complicated and, and very, very beautiful and deep ideas about the life of St. Joseph and what his life mm-hmm. means. What would you answer to mm-hmm. my husband, Father? I mean, he's right on one level, you know, in, in the scriptures, we don't have much. We have just the basics, the, the fundamentals. They tell us a lot, but it doesn't give us too much about his life. But, you know, as Catholics, it's important to remember that we have three sources for divine revelation. So we have sacred scripture, but then we also have sacred tradition, and we have, you know, the, the teaching of the church, the magisterium. So we can get a lot, you know, from what popes have said, what saints have said, mm-hmm. apparitions that St. Joseph has appeared in, shrines dedicated to him, religious communities dedicated to him. And, you know, after a while, we put all that together, you get, you get some pretty good insights on, on, on who, who St. Joseph was. So maybe what I'm expressing is sort of a Protestant infection that says, well, if it's not in the Bible, we don't know it, right? <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of all there in kernel form. But we just unpack it using reason. So obviously, we don't have any words of St. Joseph in the New Testament. But do we conclude from that that he didn't speak? Well, of course not. Right? <laughs> he spoke. And then we just, well, what would he say? What, what, what would life be like for them? And, you know, what would the conversations be like between him and, and Mary and, and between him and Jesus? Things like that. Now, all of us who live in families, and most of us live in families, we are very struck, I think, every day with the difficulty of living in, in a family. As much as it brings us joy, family life is difficult because of original sin and the way we're all oriented towards our own needs and not the needs of others. I Personally, I think that's where all the conflict comes from. And I personally think a lot about St. Joseph and the Holy Family and how it must have been very, very beautiful to live in a family where there was constant thought of the needs of others and not of oneself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, that's why we call the Holy Family, you know, the model family in that love that they had for each other and that, you know, basically, you know, helping each other in the difficult times because uh, they, like every other family, you know, they had their, their difficulties. I mean, they had to pick up and move to Egypt and how are they going to feed themselves? How are they going to support themselves? And St. Joseph certainly was probably wondering, how am I going to put a roof over, you know, the my wife's head and my, my son's head here? How am I going to do this? So, but they 
did it together as a family and they sacrificed for each other and most importantly for God. And when a family does that, when they put God first, everything's in its proper order. And, you know, it doesn't mean there won't be any difficulties, but you'll be able to get through them with peace and joy and, 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 and virtue. In the book, you highlight what you call the 10 wonders of St. Joseph. Can you tell us what mm-hmm. that is? What those are? Yeah. So, you know, as I was doing the research for the book, there was so much material that I could draw from. And I just started to look at it and I said, you know what, if I put this together, I could call them wonders and I could probably have, you know, an infinite number of them. But I thought, you know, he's he's our spiritual father. That'd be one of them. He's the saints talk about him a lot. So he's the delight of saints. He's the just man. He's adored Christ, you know, that's another wonder. He was silent. He was kind of a silent witness, patron of happy death. And and one of my favorite ones, wonders, is his title, The Terror of Demons. Oh, I like that. Um, yeah, it's such a powerful <laughs> title. You know, a lot of people don't think, you know, of St. Joseph in that way, because sometimes the, the images you see of him are shows him really old, or he just kind of is in the background, and mm-hmm. not really kind of <laughs> seemingly important, but he was. And the devil feared him because he's the only man that Jesus ever called father and that mm-hmm. Jesus obeyed. And the devil, boy, he doesn't like that. And he's terrified of that. So St. Joseph, he's a terror of demons for sure. Wow, I love that idea of, of him, uh, of St. Joseph having that kind of power and it's so it's so true that Mm -hmm. he wasn't an old feeble man he was a strong he must have had tremendous courage and tremendous fortitude and all those all those human virtues that we try so hard to acquire Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, those are the kind of things, you know, that we unpack from the scriptures, because think about it, all the walking that he had to do um, as a devout Jew, you know, at that time, all men of able body w- were required to walk to Jerusalem three times a year. And from Nazareth, that's a three days walk one way. So if you add that up, let's say he did that for 30 years, you know, probably did it for more than that. But if you add up, it up, and people have, St. Joseph walked like three-fourths of the way around the planet. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so we're and Father, about- and in one of the most inhospitable places on earth, because I've been to Israel, yeah, and just walking yeah. from the bus to the door of the hotel was <laughs> <is> very painful. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I mean, it's 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 a it's an unforgiving terrain, and it's uphill, downhill, around hills, and in the heat. You know, mm-hmm. So, not easy. You know, I thought of the Holy Family a lot when I was visiting Israel with my husband. We went on a pilgrimage, and the sheer difficulty... <laughs> of the mm-hmm. terrain is overwhelming when you see it for the first time the dryness and the the intense yep. heat and it did make me think a lot of the holy family and we seem to all of us i think judge situations by our own situation and we don't we i think we sometimes we fail to layer on the difficulties that the holy family experience mm-hmm. just by the sheer um, the difference in in their lives from ours yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we live very comfortably mm-hmm. today and we've got so many conveniences and, you know, we just pick up a little device and punch in numbers and we can order food. You know, it comes within 20 minutes. And well, back then, you know, of course, that was not the case. And, you you know, they didn't have a lot of things that we have today. And you're talking about a very difficult life, a very hard life. And, and yet, you know, they remained virtuous throughout that, even in the difficulties. And that's, an, that's a tremendous witness for us. What about St. Joseph as a worker? Do you talk about that in your book? I do. Yeah, because, you know, obviously he was a worker. He was, you know, a carpenter and he most likely also worked with stone uh, and brick, those kind of things. He probably had like a day laborer, so to speak, you know, handling all kinds of things. And um, that's how he, you know, took care of his family. And, and he was a good worker um, and he, he put everything in its proper place. So he wasn't a workaholic. 
remember, he liked to sleep. <laughs> you know, that's when uh, God spoke to him oftentimes um, was when he was sleeping. And I think that's an important thing for us because today so many people can just be work, 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 work. And, and you, you, you don't spend time with your family and you just get to- totally absorbed in that. Mm-hmm. But that's not St. Joseph. He took, he, he had work in his proper place, but he took time for his family. He took time for God. And that's important. I really, that's really important. Something that I, I like about St. Joseph and, and the quietness, his quietness is silence in the Bible. We don't, we don't hear him mm-hmm. giving long diatribes or, or talking about his feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a man of, of action who receives information, Praise on it and then acts. And I find yeah. that that's a very masculine thing in, mm-hmm. in a time. Mm-hmm. It's a very masculine feeling, in essence, no, that, that we get from St. Joseph. In a time when a lot of men are encouraged to be maybe more feminine, more Gabby, and talking about their feelings. Mm-hmm. And I really like that mm-hmm. about St. Joseph, his masculinity. Yeah. No, I think that's important, too, because... You know, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, about their own father. You know, my father, he wasn't a very talkative man, but we knew that he loved us. He provided for us. He, he worked hard uh, to provide for the family and took care of us. And, and for men, a lot of times, that's how they show their love. Mm-hmm. So for men, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't tend to be them constantly saying it, although it's good to say it, of course. I mean, that's, you know, a a wife needs that, of course. Children need that without a doubt. But a lot of times men, they really show it through their providing. And that's why when a man can't provide, he does kind of feel like he's dying inside because he you know, he's, he's, he's born that way. He's, he's meant to do that. And that's how they show it. And so sometimes, you know, I've, I've had men say to me as a priest, you know, father, you know, my wife says to me, you never tell me that you love me. And, and he says, well, I, I told her, I said, I, I, I tell you every day by the, what I do, you know, I'm bringing home you know, everything <laughs> for the family needs to pay the bills. And, and so she's like, yes, that's true. But you know, it's good to say it too. And, and he does, you know, but um, men and women are different. We just have to acknowledge that, you know, men can get so wrapped up and things that they don't think that they're doing anything wrong um, by not, by not saying it as much as a woman would, but they're they're doing it. They they, they express it through their action. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking with Father Donald Calloway about the year of St. Joseph and consecrating ourselves to him. So, Father, with that, with consecration, what does it mean exactly when we consecrate ourselves to St. Joseph or to the Sacred Heart or all the different kinds of Mm -hmm. uh, consecrations that we do? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, It's a good question because, you know, our, our ultimate consecration is to God, to Jesus, because the word itself means to set something aside for a holy purpose. So by our baptism, we are consecrated to Jesus, and he's our ultimate end. He's our goal. But in our journey to him, you know, there are things that that we can, persons and things that can help draw us even closer to him. So for example, we consecrate a chalice that will be used at mass because it, it will contain the blood of Christ and it will lead us to Christ. We consecrate an altar for example, or the church itself. Well, those are things which are great. They bring us, help us be closer to Jesus. But there are certain people that can bring us super close to Jesus, like his mom, Mary, who is our spiritual mother, and St. Joseph, his earthly father and our spiritual father. Well, if we consecrate ourselves to them, meaning entrust ourselves to them, ask them to help us, they're going to bring us super close to Jesus. And so that's what that whole consecration is all about. And why St. Joseph? Why is it important uh, to consecrate ourselves to him especially? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you know, he, he was good enough for Jesus in the sense of Jesus entrusted his own life into the hands of St. Joseph. You know, he, as he 
was a little boy. He learned from St. Joseph. He, he probably, you know, was in the workshop with St. Joseph. All of those aspects um, about Jesus, he looked at St. Joseph. And for us, who are brothers and sisters of Jesus, well, let's also look to St. Joseph for, for a loving spiritual father in our lives, especially in these times we're living in. Because right now, I mean, family and marriage is under attack. Mm-hmm. People are trying to redefine marriage. Men are confused about what it means to be a man. We've got gender identity issues today. It's just crazy out there. So we really need a good, loving father like St. Joseph right now uh, for, for our world. You know, you just talked about attacks on the family, and I I often reflect on the fact that when God came to earth, he chose to be born in a family and mm-hmm. maybe maybe centuries ago that wasn't that wasn't such a such a strange concept but now it almost is 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 a revolutionary thought because yeah. of the attacks on the family and the way the family has been redefined to mean sort of just people living in the same house um, right and oh, yeah. what what do you think i mean i know saint joseph plays into this but it is this idea of the holy family of this the basic nucleus of all love is the family mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. how can we think more about that in this year of St. Joseph and, and concentrate our attentions on that. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, in this time where there is so much confusion, I think it's good to go back to the basics. And so, you know, the family is is the building block of civilization, and it's so basic. It's so fundamental. So it's good to have a mom and a dad. It's good to have that sense of security in, in family life and in the home. And tragically, a lot of people are not growing up with that today. They're coming from very difficult households and, and everything. But no matter what your situation is, you can look to the Holy Family because Mary is our spiritual mother, St. Joseph is our spiritual father, and Jesus is our our brother. I mean, he's our God and our Messiah, the Savior of the world, but he, he came to be our brother. And so I think, you know, in our prayer life, for example, let's ask them. Let's ask our Lord, first and foremost, of course, and then Our Lady and St. Joseph to help us maybe heal from some wounds that we've had from our own, you know, experience, um, as flawed as it may be in our own family, hurts and, you know, harms that have happened to us. It's, it, it happens. It's a fallen world. And ask them to, to help us to grow and to, to, you know, be healed of these things and move forward because we don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to just sit still. We want to be moving forward. Um, and they'll help us with that. Absolutely. What a wonderful thing to think about that we, in, in, in all our, you know, not only in our past that we may the wounds we may have from our own families but the wounds we inflict in the families that we live in (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I wish that wasn't happening but I think it's all it's happening to all of us all the time how wonderful to think that the church gives us uh, this 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 beautiful opportunity to think of St. Joseph and Mm -hmm. and how he was able to to form to make part of this the perfect family the holy family where each one was loving each other loving the other perfectly all the time which Mm -hmm. what a wonderful I don't know. To me, it's a great inspiration. Mm-hmm. No, it is. And I think that uh, I think there's going to be a lot of great fruit from this year of St. Joseph. And it's definitely getting, I think, people thinking more about spiritual things and just about their own situation. You know, a lot of women are thinking, you know, wow, I never realized St. Joseph was so amazing. And I, I'm taking great comfort in such a good father. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of men are looking to him and saying, wow, I, I need to step up my game. You know, <laughs> I need to be a better man. I need to be a better husband and father like St. Joseph. So those are going to be great fruits. I think we're going to we're going to see as a result of this year. Now, Father, we don't have much time left, but I, I know that you're in Steubenville, Ohio, very far from the ocean on either side mm-hmm. of the country. Mm-hmm. But you have you're known as the surfer priest. Now, why is that? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I grew up surfing. My stepfather was in the Navy, so we always lived near water. And so, yeah, I started surfing at a young age and kept it up. I still do. Not in Ohio, of course, but when I travel, you know, I, I when I'm near water, people know that. So they're like, oh, Father, so-and-so's got a surfboard and a wetsuit, you know, member of the parish. They want to take you out. So I'm like, great, let's go, you know, so... <laughs> Now you're a convert to Catholicism? Yeah, that's right. I converted and uh, yeah, I was a pretty bad dude before my conversion for oh. sure. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, you, you, you seem to have gone 180 degrees then, Father. <laughs> oh, God is merciful, my friend. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, we're very fortunate in the church to have you, Father, and, and very fortunate to have you on our show. I thank you very much for your time today and for your rich spiritual insights. And to our listeners, for more information about consecrating oneself to St. Joseph, you can visit fathercalloway.com. That's father, C-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y.com. So thank you, Father, and hope to have you on again soon. Sounds good, my friend. God bless you. Keep up the good work. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us on Pentecost Sunday. In the Gospel we have, Jesus tells the first apostles in the upper room on Easter Sunday night and all of us, receive the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to receive the Holy Spirit? Many of us haven't really received him deeply. There's a famous scene in the Acts of the Apostles when St. Paul came to Ephesus and met some disciples. He asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They responded, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Pope Emeritus Benedict at World Youth Day in Australia in 2008 said, the Holy Spirit has been in some ways the neglected person of the Blessed Trinity. And he confessed that it was only as a young priest teaching theology that he began not only to recognize the importance that the Holy Spirit should play in his life as a priest and professor, but that he came to know him intimately. He added, it's not enough to know the Holy Spirit. We must welcome him as the guide of our souls, as the teacher of the interior life, who introduces us to the mystery of the Trinity, because he alone can open us up to faith and allow us to live it each day to the full. And we don't have to be a card-carrying member of the charismatic renewal to allow the Holy Spirit to become that teacher and guide. If we wish to understand the faith, if we wish to live the faith, if we wish to pass it on, we must allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit, even if we, like Father Joseph Ratzinger, are beginning as adults. For us, the great unknown must become the great known, the teacher, the leader, the consoler, the advocate of our life. During the Last Supper, Jesus said something truly shocking about the Holy Spirit. He said, I tell you the truth, it's better for you that I go. For if I do not go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Jesus is basically declaring that if we have to choose between him and the Holy Spirit, we should choose the latter. That's how important Jesus says the Holy Spirit is. The great joy, of course, is that we don't have to choose between the Son and the Spirit. It's crucial for us, however, to ponder the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, to examine whether we've received the Holy Spirit within us at the depth at which he wants to go. We can learn a lot about how to receive the Holy Spirit well through remembering what happened on that first Pentecost. Before his ascension, Jesus had enjoined the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father about which they had heard him speak. For in a few days, he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
The apostles and other followers of Jesus very wisely huddled around Mary and devoted themselves with one accord to prayer. They prayed together with Mary in order to learn from her how to get ready to receive the Holy Spirit. For it was she who was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit at Jesus' virginal conception, and who continually lived as a spouse of the Holy Spirit, receiving and responding to his inspirations in an exemplary way. United with her, they prayed and they waited. Jesus hadn't told them how long they were to wait in prayerful expectation. So their first holy hour stretched into a day of recollection. They eventually went to bed and awakened and prayed a whole second day. They might have thought that just as God the Father had had them wait until the third day for Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit would come after three days that seemed like an eternity. But he didn't come. So they prayed a fourth day. A fifth. Now this was taking on the form of a retreat. A sixth day. They were doubtless wondering if the Holy Spirit would come on the seventh day, the day of divine rest. But they were thwarted again. The eighth day. Were they going to have to do this forever? The ninth day. They kept praying and waiting. It was finally on the tenth day, the Feast of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit burst through the windows of the upper room like the noise of a strong driving wind and came down upon each of them as tongues of fire. It's important for us to ask why God made them wait so long in prayerful vigil. Some might say that he wanted to wait until Pentecost, the day on which the Jews celebrated their harvest festival in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, to show how the Holy Spirit was the law of the new covenant being placed within their hearts. It was going to be the driving force of the harvest of men and women, boys and girls, for Christ's kingdom until the end of time. Some might say because it gave them a chance to learn from Mary about Jesus' early days, his conception, birth, flight to Egypt, finding in the temple, in his hidden years working as a construction worker with St. Joseph in Nazareth. Both of those reasons make sense. But I think the most fitting explanation is that God wanted the early church to grow in desire for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, to long for the Holy Spirit's presence, to discover the reasons why they really, really, really needed his guidance and assistance, so that they would be totally receptive and responsive like Mary to the divine ignition he was going to turn on in them. For us to receive the Holy Spirit well, we must long for him, long for him like Mary and the apostles, and then we must allow him to transform us. How does the Holy Spirit want to transform us as we receive him with hunger? We can focus on four ways. First way is through prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us to learn how to pray, coming, as St. Paul says, to the aid of our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us. He wants to help us learn how to pray so that our life might become an existence-made prayer and enable us to live our whole life in union with God. St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes with us or intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words, that he helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, and pray as beloved sons and daughters who know that the Father cares for us more than for the lilies or sparrows and will never give us a stone when we ask for bread. To receive the Holy Spirit well means that we're ready to cooperate in our prayer and allow the Holy Spirit to change the way we pray so that he can, in a sense, blow his strong driving wind within us the way a trumpeter makes music. Will you receive the Holy Spirit this way? The second way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us is we receive him is in how we live our Christian life. The Holy Spirit is sent to guide us. St. Paul tells us in his letters to the Galatians and the Romans that there are two basic ways to live. To live according to the Spirit or to live according to the flesh. To live by the Spirit means we're constantly seeking what God the Holy Spirit seeks. To live by the flesh means to place our heart, our treasure, in the things of the world 
in money and material possessions, in carnal pleasures, in fame, power, influence, and superficialities. To receive the Holy Spirit means that we want Him to help us to put to death in us whatever lives by the flesh, so that we may totally live by His inspiration, His inbreathing, as Mary and the Apostles did, and as the saints have ever since. Are we ready to receive the Holy Spirit at that depth? The third way the Holy Spirit wants to transform us is with regard to the missionary dimension of the Christian life, to our boldly and confidently sharing the faith with others. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us with a fire to light the world ablaze with the gospel. He came down as tongues of fire upon the early church to symbolize that he wanted us, strengthened by him, to use our tongues to proclaim the gospel with ardent love. We see how the Holy Spirit helps simple men speak powerfully and effectively in front of vast crowds. He can do the same with us by baptism and by our confirmation. And tomorrow on Pentecost, I'll celebrate with joy the 35th anniversary of my own confirmation by having the privilege to confirm someone I'm receiving into the Catholic Church. By our baptism and our confirmation, we've all received the same spirit that the apostles received on Pentecost. To receive the Holy Spirit is, just like the apostles left the other upper room, to get ready to burst through the doors of our homes and churches and use every means we have to announce Christ's kingdom. Are we ready to let the Holy Spirit transform us that way? The last way the Holy Spirit wants to change us is by making us aware of His gifts so that we might use them to transform the church and renew the world. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit has given each of us a manifestation of the Spirit for the benefit of the whole. He's given each of us spiritual gifts so that we may carry out the different forms of service and different workings necessary to make Christ's body, the church, strong. He wants to help us to recognize what our gifts are, and just as importantly, to use them to build up our family, to build up our parishes, to build up the church as a whole, and help it fulfill its mission in the world. The mission of the church is not just for ordained or consecrated specialists. To receive the Holy Spirit well, to recognize that we are called to be contributors rather than consumers, givers rather than takers, co-responsible participants rather than seated spectators in the mission Christ has given to the church. Are you ready to receive the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good? So the consequence of the conversation Jesus wants to have with us on Pentecost is that we truly receive the Holy Spirit more profoundly than ever and cooperate with Him as He seeks through us and through our prayer, through our Christian life, through our missionary work, and through our acting on the manifestation of the Spirit to renew the face of the earth. It is better for Jesus to ascend for the Holy Spirit to come. That's how awesome this gift is. Happy Pentecost. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 